Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. It's a pleasure to have with us today Jay Bharacharya from Stanford University, Professor of Medicine and Professor of Economics. Jay, thanks for joining us at the Salem Center for Policy. It's my pleasure, Carlos. So Jay, in all these interviews that I'm conducting, uh, I'm asking people to, to try to go back in time and think about the evidence and the sort of information they had in place and start thinking about the, the COVID back in March. So, so what was the first sort of a set of information and, 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 and evidence that really you know, started getting your attention to the problem? So uh, if, I, if I go back to March, my, uh, I, I, I've been doing work on, on economic epidemiology for a long time. And I did some work on the, on the H1N1 flu epidemic in 2009. And in, in March, I thought back to what we knew about the mortality rate in H1N1 and how that evolved over time. So very early on, there were case reports in the H1N1, this is 2009 uh, epidemic, about enormously high uh, mortality rates, case fatality rates, what we call them now, right? So uh, from H1N1. And uh, in fact, like in Argentina, there was reports of 14%, typically worldwide, it was like 1%, 2 3%. Very, very high. You know, 3% is a really high. Three in 100 people died from a disease. It's enormously high. And what happened in H1N1 was that uh, seroprevalence studies started to come out that found that, that there were about 100 times more cases, infections, than there were cases. 100 times more. So, you know, seroprevalence studies, as your audience probably knows, is our studies of antibodies in the blood of, the, of, of, patient, of people. And uh, you know, seroprevalence studies attempt to measure. It's attempt to be a population number, rather than just looking at people who come down with the uh, illness and uh, are identified by doctors or then tested to see if you have the, the virus. Uh, seroprevalence looks for antibody evidence. Says, okay, yeah, even though you may not have shown up to the doctor with the disease, you you, you had it because the antibodies that are specific to the, the disease say that you had it. Um, and in the case of H1N1, there were uh, was there turned out to be a hundred times more. Uh, cases, infections, and cases. Sorry, sorry to interrupt that. Uh, uh, so when you say a hundred times, that's that's probably a, a lower bound, right? Because our ability to detect antibodies is also restricted, right? It takes a while to detect, and pe- because they go they go away, right, after a few months. Yeah, that's no, that's right. In fact, that turns out to be, I think, even more important in the case of uh, of COVID than even than in the H one N one case. Um, and uh, not everybody reacts to antibodies with with antibodies as strongly as other people. Uh, you know, so it, it it really is it is an it is a lower bound. It's probably lower than it's it's, it's probably more than a hundred. Um, in any case, with that hundredfold, that the for, the infection fatality rate turned out to be about point somewhere between point oh one and point oh two percent. Okay, one in ten thousand to two in ten thousand, whereas the initial estimates were on the order of one in a hundred to much higher. Okay, so I remembered that. I mean, that was my, my very first thought when I saw the case fatality rate estimates that, that were out in the, in the um, public on, in COVID. And so, I mean, it, I suppose it's not that unusual to wonder, as, as, and that's what I did. I just wondered, maybe, do we have that situation now? And uh, I looked around and no one seemed to be talking about that, which was really odd to me. It seemed like the most obvious, one of the most obvious lessons, I remembered it from the H1N1 epidemic. Why should we not consider that as a possibility now. Uh, everyone's attention was focused on the people who were dying in the hospitals the, with, the, with the severe viral pneumonia, which was you know, absolutely terrible. Um, but we didn't know, I mean, I didn't know how, how widespread it was. I mean, you, could, you, you shouldn't extrapolate from a previous disease. It could be 100 to 1, it could be 10 to 1, who knows what it is. And so I worked uh, uh, with, with some of my friends we, uh, uh, and colleagues here and, uh, and elsewhere to start up some of these seroprevalence studies to try to get that number. Um, that's so that, and I think um, a lot of the discussion that led to the lockdown was in, it, se- it seemed to me, it struck me as in the absence of that vital piece of information. How widespread is it and how deadly is it? Uh, unless you have that, you can't get any reasonable discussion about the cost and benefits of a lockdown. And just to, so we're clear, the lockdown itself was an extraordinary decision. Uh, and I don't think that uh, I can think, I mean, I don't, I can't, I don't, I, you have to go back to 1918 to find some evidence, some, something similar policy of such widespread uh, cessation of, of, of all activity as a, as a way to combat a disease spread. 
It's just, it's, it's unique in my experience. Well, even um, then I think it wasn't as extreme, right. And, and, in the, in the, the spread of the lockdown it was like specific to some cities and, and so on. Right. Yeah. It was, a, it was a universal lockdown. It was, and it just followed one after the other, one country after the other basically decided on the basis of, I think almost no evidence that it was, this was the only way to address the epidemic. Um, I think when you do an extraordinary policy like a lockdown, you need extraordinary evidence. And we, we did it with the absence of that kind of evidence. So, so let me let, so go back a little bit, right? So when, when we're looking at the, the evidence, then you, you, you had experience with H1N1 and presumably the epidemiologists at a time involved with H1N1, which I'm sure they, 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 the types of uh, uh, sort of uh, what they call it, SIR models that are put in place to study viruses, they're not that different, the ones that were used for H1N1, right? So one of the inputs for those models is the, the infection fatality rate. They have to make assumptions about, okay, if this thing infects as many people, how many people are gonna die and then make those projections. So uh, from, from your description of what, what the difference between the, the initial case fatality rate on H1N1 and, uh, and um, the actual IFRs, infection fatality rates that were found later on, that probably was a huge discrepancy in the epidemiological predictions at first, and quickly in a span of a, I don't know, what was the span of time between the initial yeah, case? Of- months in the case of H1N1 to get to the right number. I, that's why I partly, that was, that was what motivated trying to go fast. I wanted the conversation to move very quickly to actual numbers using these seroprevalence studies as opposed, I want, that was my whole goal actually, was to get the people who were populating these models to populate them with parameters that, that had some evidence behind them as opposed to make things they were just guessing. Right, um, right. So, 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 so that, that time during H1N1, so what, what I'm trying to say is that how, what would you anal- a, a, a sort of pinpoint as the difference between why didn't we freak out and lock the world down under H1N1 given that there was some indication of this is a flu that goes around pretty quickly, is pretty aggressive in terms of it's, it's contagious. It might be killing 3% of people. What, what was different then? I, th- I think the, the single biggest difference in the early discussion of H1N1 was, was the, the possibility of very quickly getting a vaccine. I mean, they rushed the vaccine and people were worried, okay, is this vaccine safe? But we have a lot of experience with flu vaccine. We have a lot of experience with, with developing them, with uh, you know, sort of assuring that, that, that they're safe and, and we have a mechanism to, to deploy them in a wide scale setting. That None of that was true in the case of, of COVID. Um, I think that the ability to develop that vaccine so quickly in the case of H1N1 really did calm down the public policy response. Uh, and then the seroprevalence studies, studies started coming out and we're like, okay, we got very lucky, right? The thing was not as deadly as we thought it was, thank God, right? And we have a vaccine quickly, the, it's all over. But in some sense, it was, in, in some sense it, was, it was happenstance, right? We know now it was happenstance because the thing turned out to not be so deadly and uh, it happened to be the flu. So we have a vaccine platform. H1N1, uh, so different from COVID in that sense, no vaccine platform. We have uh, this deadly number, this 3% number. Um, in fact, I think the, uh, the Imperial College model, they populate, their initial IFR was like 1% in their model. That's the, what led to the 2 million deaths. 2.2 million deaths, right, right. Um, uh, and they use these like, uh, you know, these Bayesian kind of, you know, like they're trying to, it's like these models that, that they're just, they're, they're under identified, right? There's all these parameters and they're fitting it to not very many hard endpoints. And they're, you know, like fine, they have some, some Bayesian fit to like try to get the, get the parameters to work, but who the hell knows if those are right. You really need to populate some of those numbers with actual data on, you know, is it drawn from studies like seroprevalence studies to have any confidence in them. Right. Um, well, and on top of it, I think those models, um, uh, they just they lack the human element to it. Like once, you know, you understand things, once you start reacting to it, the exponential growth that they assume and those things were just assumed. And they'd like, oh, oh yeah, well, that, that's, you know, of course, we, that's not how the world works, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a classic problem that economic epidemiology addresses, right? So the idea is that uh, people respond. Uh, so the, 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 the elasticity of demand for uh, self-protection is a function of the prevalence of the disease, the dangerous, the perceived dangerousness of the disease. So when the da- when the danger is going up, people will automatically, voluntarily engage in self-protection, hand washing, other kind of mitigation activities. You know, they won't go to they won't go out to baseball games or whatever. Right. Um, uh, so I mean that that is not in any of those models. 
there, there are all these very, very detailed compartment models, but the, that kind of feedback of how prevalence changes behavior is not in any of the models. And of course, as you pointed out, the models tend to be these homogenous models of mixing. And we, all, we know for certain that there's no homogenous mixing. That, that, that in fact, there's like, you know, pe people mix with uh, you know, better heterogeneous ways. And in fact, even it's even, you can go further. People who believe that they're highest risk are, are, respond more dramatically with reductions in, uh, in, in, in social mixing. Uh, and the models don't have any of that in there, right? Right. So but that's that, just a, that's a perennial problem. Um, but so, but I, I like I, I just but I, that IFR number dro drove everything. It scales up and down with that IFR number in those models. So if you, if the IFR number really was a hundred times, it turns out not to be a hundred times less. Just we can we can jump forward. I think it turns out to be about uh, five to ten times less than that. Uh, probably five times less than that. Uh, in any case, the, 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 that that the the number of deaths scales with the IFR. In those models, um, so let's go back to to then where when we used to, you you try to push forward to some to do something fast, right? To get a zero prevalence study done as quick as possible. Um, then tell us about the Santa Clara study. Sure. So um, yeah, that was the first of three sort of uh, zero prevalence studies I've been involved with. Um, the the Santa Clara study we organized it uh, in. In, at a speed, and, I, and all the credit goes to Aaron, Dr. Baran Medavid, actually my, one of my very first students ever, uh, said he's, he's uh, down the hall from me. Um, and he organized it in, in a incredibly rapid way. And, and, the, and it was actually a really nice feeling. This, there were all kinds of folks around the Stanford community that came together, volunteered their time, medical students offering their time. My family offered, like we're volunteers, Aaron's family were volunteers in, in uh, helping set up things and you know, that, enter data, all this kind of stuff. Um, I mean, it was, it was uh, and normally a study like that, uh, where we drew blood from, you know, 2000 more, a whole bunch of, I mean, a very, very large number of people in the community would have taken a year or more to set up and get permissions. Um, uh, we managed to do it in, in, a, in, a, in a matter of weeks. Um, it partly this, this happened because we were using a test um, platform called a, a, a lateral flow assay test. It's a little tiny, it looks for all the world like a little pregnancy kit, but it, it measures antibodies to the specific to SARS-CoV-2. Now the FDA had provided uh, a uh, authorization for, to commercialize those kits in the US in March for research purposes. Mm -hmm. They weren't a lot authorized for, for clinical use in, in, in the population, but for our use, it was perfect. And we knew a fair bit about the, the test that we used. It looked like it had pretty good sensitivity and specificity properties. I mean, we, we, we turned out we needed, we needed, we, we were going to learn a lot more about the kits, but in March, we know we, we, they look promising, let's just say, in terms of sensitivity and specificity properties. We powered up our study, said, okay, we don't know the prevalence, but let's say, like, and we made a bet, my, me, the, the main authors of the study, about like what we thought the prevalence was going to be. I thought it was going to be much higher than it turned out to be. Um, you know, that's why you do the number. That's why you run, that's why you run the study, right? Um, my my co-authors thought it would be lower, uh, and uh, we powered it with their guess because we wanted to be conservative. And right. lower means you need a large sample size, and uh, so we powered it with a very you know pretty large sample size. And we collected over two days. We collected uh, thousands of samples. The test kit, the nice property about the test kit for fielding it in the, in the context of a lockdown was we could just draw blood off a finger stick. The, 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 the people just came up, drove up, they stuck their finger out the window, did, didn't expose the person pulling the blood or the, to, to anyone to, to any, uh, any you know, sort of respiratory droplets. We don't know what the, the, the risk is. So we, we have, have everybody mask up and, and uh, wear, wear gloves and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and having that but essentially the, the car window shield was yep. another level of protection. Uh, if we had tried to get, the, there, are, there are another set of, uh, of tests called ELISAs. ELISAs you have to run in a lab and you need a venous blood draw, at least you did back then, a venous blood draw to, and it's getting a venous blood draw is like, it's a big deal. You got to pull, you, know, you got to, it's hard to, hard to do in a, in, a, in a setting like that, it would have been impossible. Right. Couldn't run a study like that. So presumably um, the second type of test would be more precise, right? So then, so. The, yeah, I mean, although in, in retrospect, it turned out it's not as bad as, I mean, the little kit we used turned out to be fantastically precise, huh. which I'll tell you about in it. Uh, so yeah, so we, we ran the study uh, and found a prevalence of, of uh, two point, I think it was like 2.8%, um, which turns out to be about 50, 50 positives out of, uh, uh, I forget the number, uh, what the denominator is. But in any case, the, 
the the we we, we had to we now there were a couple of aspects on the sampling. I, we we were talking about econometrics and stuff, right? So we can we can we can talk about that. Um, uh, the sampling of the study, we did this very very rapid sampling through Facebook to sign people up, and it turns out that that is not a representative sample, not surprisingly. Um, so we reweighted the population to make it look like the demographics of the county. And so if you just do the unweighted, it's like 1.5% with the, it, it turns out like two to one women signed up relative to men. Uh, the, 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 it undersampled some of the zip codes where there were poor populations and backfired by a fair bit. So we reweighted so that it, it matched the zip uh, sex and race sort of mix of Santa Clara County. And uh, that's where you get the 2.8%. So with that 2.8%, that turns out to be about 50,000 cases if you if you extrapolate the county at large. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course that excludes jails and other institutionalized populations that weren't sampled. Up to date, in the in the county, that up to the, the had, there had been a thousand identified cases. Thousand identified cases. So that means we had a, a multiplier by 50 to one. If you, you know, you allow for a death lag, it turns out that, that the death, the, the infection fatality rate was somewhere on the order of two in a thousand after you, after right. you did all that. Whereas the case fatality rate at the time was about 10% in Santa Clara County. Oh, wow. So 50 to one difference in the, in the case fatality rate versus infection fatality rate. Okay. So, so, so we're talking here, just summarize, right? So you're talking about a 10% case fatality rate in the county and you're looking at an IFR estimate of about 0.25 or something like that. 0.2. Actually, it was at 0.2. Point two. Okay. 0.2. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, in LA County, we ran a very, very similar study. And it was, again, very, uh, it was the multiplier was like 40 not, rather than 50, but a, almost the same IFR. Almost the same IFR. A little bit higher, I think, in, in LA than in, in, in Santa Clara County, but nothing, nothing to write home about. Um, okay. So we, re, we uh, I also did, I also worked on the Major League Baseball study, which we can talk about if you want, but the, the, it's, it, these two are the, sort of the central studies that, that have drawn focus. Okay, so uh, we release the, we, we send out the LA County study, which we kind of a week after the Santa Clara study to JAMA for review. Mm -hmm. It gets accepted almost immediately. It's published. Almost no notice. And that's the JAMA, the premier medical journal yeah, in the world. Journal of the Medical Association. We decide we wanted to get out the message quickly on the Santa Clara study. So we put it on a preprint server, kind of like economists are used to NBR. Uh, th that's normal for economists because it takes so many, so many, so so long to get any paper, right, get published. paper published, right? And, and so we're used to essentially what are called pre, uh, pre, in medicine preprint servers. We we put up those working papers, we discuss them ad nauseum long before they see print. By the time they see print, it's really old news, right? Uh, in medicine, that's a new thing. In medicine, what's, what ha the norm is you don't say anything about the paper until it's published. Right. In recent years, this open science model has started to like take over medicine. These open model, op and actually I think it's been really healthy for medicine um, because having these preprints, it, it, it allows there to be a much broader set of people discussing these things. You know, it's mixed. I mean, sometimes the, the discussion is not that productive, but like that's true in economics too, I think. Right. So uh, we released it through this preprint and Twitter and the whole world exploded. I've never had 10,000 uh, referee reports in my life up to that time, way less than that. But I, I, got, I literally, within a day, I had 10,000 referee reports in my inbox all at once. So a lot of hate posts out there. I remember reading some things from colleagues that I think are you know, very thoughtful in general. I was like, whoa, um, I'm not gonna name names here, but there was, there's a, a prominent statistics blog that was very mean to to to, to your team. Yeah, I mean, I, like the statisticians, <laughs> and you know, some of it was justified. So, so we made a mistake in the calculation with the standard errors, and which we corrected. The weighting, right? Uh, yeah, no, actually, so it was it was literally just like the, so the, the formula we have to uh, so the the statistics involve this. So you have to correct for how sensitive and specific the test is. Mm -hmm. The false positive rate and the false negative rate. So we did that. We had a formula that corrects for the sensitivity and specificity. And uh, it was my fault. I, we, the, the sample sizes for the sensitivity and specificity are not the same as the sample sizes for the, for the, for the, the study at large. And I didn't take that into account okay. in, the initial, in, the, in the initial thing. Um, but a week later, we issued, this is how preprints work. You can update right. them. That's science, not right? Published. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, and, and in fact, my view of that was this was a really productive thing. I got the 10,000 re re referee reports. We took the important parts of it. We, we revised it and we updated it. 
right? And if we learn, uh, uh, the other thing that, that happened- um, And to be was, clear, that didn't change your estimate, right? That changed your, your, your uncertainty about it, maybe a little bit wider uncertainty yeah. on that range, right? Yes, exactly. Um, and I'll say this, the other thing that happened was that uh, because of the open science model, a very large number of people turned out uh, had worked to evaluate the sensitivity and specificity of these of that specific test we were using. It's called mm -hmm. this Premier Biotech Kit. Um, so we got, uh, I mean, we went from about 400 samples for the specificity number to about I mean, over a thousand. I mean, over three. I mean, over a thousand. I can't. I can't remember. I'm misremembering the number, but like a very large number of samples. All of a sudden, about both the sensitivity and specificity just greatly decreasing the actual standard error. Right. So even after, so after we corrected, it was, the standard errors were a little bit, you know, a little bit wider. The point estimate was the same. Maybe not that surprising, right? Right. right. And it turns out that the kit is incredibly sensitive and incredibly specific. Like, so 99.6 or 99.5 specific on that order. So one, uh, five false positives out of a thousand. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, that turns out to be the main number because the false, like in a low prevalence environment, false positives can kill you. So we, we, it was a very low false positive rate at the point estimate. And after we got all those, uh, all those independent tests of the test kit, we learned that the standard error for that was much smaller than we realized when we released version one. Um, I mean, there were a lot of like false things on like uh, there was a very prominent post on Medium arguing that all of our all of our positives could be false positives, which turns out not to be true. true right. um, I mean, it, it just I think that science was fine. I was actually happy with that. I, I think that's how open science is supposed to work. Um, and I learned stuff. And I think we know more. I think that we have more confidence in the study as a result of that discussion. It's good. It's good science. Uh, what I didn't expect was the media BuzzFeed attacked my family, uh, which was really annoying. Like, so my, my wife, I told you to participate in the study. She, right. She's a doctor, she's an oncologist. Uh, she wrote to her friends, cause she was all excited about the study to get to participate. And somebody leaked the, the email she wrote, which had not some, there was some information that wasn't correct in it to BuzzFeed, which who decided to make her an, uh, into a national story. Uh, the, the, the funding for the study was small donors all to Stanford. I mean, I took no personal money for the study. And uh, one of the donors uh, who gave money after the study was, was, a, was a jet blue executive, David Nealman, who's interested in the results of the study. I mean, he's interested in the results of the study. Okay. He had $5,000 to the, to Stanford and Buzzfeed wrote an article accusing me of conflict of interest outrageously. Um, I mean, it was really, really annoying to have to deal with all of this. And in the midst of it, Stanford uh, itself actually acted in ways, I think, that attacked my attack academic freedom, which, which we can go into in a, in a bit. I mean, I've just, I've been very, very disappointed with Stanford leadership on this front, because I had always thought of Stanford as a place that respected academic freedom. I've been here for, since not, my undergrad was here, I've been, I've been, I did my graduate school here, I did my MD here. I've, I've always loved that we have a, a motto uh, is that, uh, let, in German, let the winds of freedom blow. I don't believe that that's anymore. No longer the case, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe that's true about Stanford anymore. At least not in their current leadership. And, um, I, and, I, and I would. I wouldn't point out to Stanford specifically on that problem, right? I think that had you been in a lot of different places, my guess. No, but this is right now. University of pretty. <laughs> it's home for me. It's, it's just. It's, it's. It came as a shock, right? It's like you. I, 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 anyway, so uh, enough about me. I mean that, but that that was that was not that was really a, a stressful time as a result of it. I wish it was just about the science. The other thing I didn't fully expect was uh, the the political angle of it. Like, why is the IFR of this disease a political fight? You it's became so you became a rabid Republican as a result of that paper, right? Well, it's just, <laughs> I, I'll tell you, like my uh, colleagues, uh, my senior colleague, uh, Johnny Anides, who worked on the study with me, I have no idea what his politics are. I really don't. I never talk. Why would I talk to Johnny Anides about politics when I could learn from him 500 other things that are way more interesting and important, right? And, and uh, Iran, I'm pretty sure there's some, a lot of politics we don't share, but I don't care because he's a brilliant scientist and I learned from him every time I talk with him about something important. So I, I just, it was really, really weird. Like it doesn't matter. Like I've, I've always thought that, like I, I write with everybody. I mean, you can look at my, my CV. I've written with people of all different political stripes. It doesn't, I don't, I frankly, most of the time, I don't know what the political stripes are because it doesn't make any difference. 
And, and, and to be clear, right, uh, uh, one of the things that your study was providing us was the potential evidence for us to be able to make a more informed decision about what to do and what not to do. And, and it was not at all pointing out, oh, here's what you should do or should not do, right? That's, I guess, the, the realm of politics. Yeah, I mean, like you, the IFR, okay, so, I mean, obviously the policy is going to be different if you think that the death rate is three, three in 100 than if it's two in 1,000, right? right? You, you're, you have to have a different policy. Otherwise, why, you're, just, you're not doing it right. Right. Um, but shouldn't it be informed by that? So anyways, we, we put this study out and it creates this like huge uh, firestorm of attack on us. And, uh, you know, the economists are writing me saying, oh, no, no, it, you can't, uh, it can't be that low. Look at New York. Right. And, and the problem is like it gets, it gets the medicine wrong. The IFR is not just a single number that's a feature of the, 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 the virus. It's a function of the host and the virus and the health policy setting in which you, which the, 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 the cases are managed. So if you're in a setting where you can't get good medical care, you're going to, you're going to have a very high IFR. Right. If, if you're in a setting where uh, the, 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 the bug hits old people in nursing homes, you're going to have a very high IFR, right? If you're, if you're, if you're, if it's, if it's hitting basically uh, young, healthy people that, that actually, it turns out that the, the death rate from this is really age stratified. So, like, if you're over 65, this is much worse than the flu. Much, much worse than the flu. If you're under 40, it's it's better. You'd rather have you'd rather have this than the flu, and it's not false. If, I mean, for instance, among um, among kids in the U.S., I think somewhere on the order of three times more kids have died of the flu this year than of COVID-19. Which, by any measure, has been a very mild flu season, right? Which is hard for us to separate because a lot of it is, you know, COVID and flu versus flu and and yeah. Although there's just like emerging evidence, you can't get both at the same time. It's I don't know. There's some 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 interesting stuff there. But in any case, like it, it it it's on that order. It's not it's not that deadly as far as uh, it's not it's not like super super deadly the way it is for older people. I mean, for young people, it's it's you know, and so you, uh, that age stratification matters for policy also. Right. So because now we know who we have to protect, who we have to work really hard to protect and who who it's it's sort of, with, you know, we don't it, it changes the balance of costs and benefits. Right. When you think about thinking, thinking about it, that age stratification in your L.A. or, or, or Santa Clara study, um, you probably didn't have enough power to get a good read on the IFR per different groups. Right? You didn't, for example, we didn't sample enough children. To, to get a sense well, of so LA we didn't do children in uh, in LA in Santa Clara we did do children so it, the prevalence looked pretty pr- pretty close uh, we didn't end up reporting it in the main paper but we've now done that calculation um, I don't know if you can tell I mean statistically there are significant differences between old and young you know even in the Santa Clara sample because the, the 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 actual point estimates are so large the difference is so large um, actually at that time not a single child had died in Santa Clara from it in fact I think that's still true it's still probably true right yeah. Yeah, the numbers are so low. I mean, it's almost like it's hard for us to even pinpoint that to COVID. If you look at the number of being so low across the world on, yeah, on children, I mean, and that's you know, like that's this a, might be a, a you know unhealthy children dying for various reasons. And, and, and I have to say, like when when I when the, when the thing first hit, like I worried, what am I? What do I? You know, can, will I bring the home this the COVID home because I had to go out and interact with some people occasionally? I'll bring it home, and and, and after I saw the study results, I thought, okay, that's a, that's that's a huge blessing that we don't have to worry about for our kids. But right. just imagine if it were, were the opposite. You know, you have the 1918 flu, which, right, hit, right, which killed young people. That's a hugely different optimal response there, I would think. So let's fast forward a little bit and then think about all the other IFR studies that are now 50 available. Now. Studies. 50 and they find the same. Okay, I'll be a little careful because I'm talking to someone who knows statistics really well. So uh, our number is in the median of where of these IFRs, of these studies, these seropolitan studies. Now there are 50 plus of them done. Um, in places all around the world. Right. In places like Japan, it looks like the IFR is lower. Uh, in places like Spain, it was higher. Uh, and we're the median. We're pretty close to the median, 0.26. So somewhere between uh, two in a thousand and three in a thousand is the IFR, I think. And so you know, just, to, just to nail that home, that means that if you get infected, uh, that somewhere between 997 times out of a thousand, 998,000 times out of a thousand, you will survive the, 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 the disease. Okay, With of course the caveat being the big stratification per age, right? So, so, so we know now. And, and also there, there, there are other things that I didn't mention, but are really important as well. So they're like, if you have some comorbid conditions, it seems like you're in, it, uh, it makes you put, put you at higher risk, things like that, which, I mean, we'll learn more as, as time goes on, but I think we already know quite a bit about that. Right. Right. 
Um, I actually, yeah. So my, 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 my brother in Brazil got, got diagnosed with COVID and, and he has two of the comorbidities. He's a little older than me and, and, you know, high blood pressure, pre-diabetes. And we're like, oh, wow. But then I, I, uh, so he actually got hospitalized for a couple of days for no reason, just for observations. And I remember talking to my mom I was like, listen, I re- look at the numbers, even in his condition, we're talking here at maybe one in a thousand. <laughs> Yeah, maybe no, a little bit more, a little bit more. Yeah, a little more, but on that, yeah, a little more. It's still less than one percent, probably. Yeah, I mean, certainly less than one percent. Right, right. And that's which is I what the Imperial College model said. I mean, right. and look, I, so I think um, uh, you know, fifty studies that find roughly what we found. I, I think we got the science right. Uh, I think Twitter got it wrong. Um, so, so uh, which is, I mean, you know, not, not to say Twitter was bad. I mean, it, it was actually, I said, productive to have that scientific discussion so we can know if it was, uh, we were finding something robust or not. But the, the real test is replication. And we now have replication studies from around the world that found the same thing. Right. And, and in addition, right, I think we have the, the, the sort of like the assumptions about number of deaths associated with an IFR 1%. You know, we're maybe 2.2 million deaths, and we're like uh, order magnitude away from that, right? Yeah, there's two. Of course, there's two things going on, which is the 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 infectiveness of it, and all the measures that we put in place, and all the things that we're still doing that clearly slow down the the the, the progression of the virus. Um, but I think the best case scenario, with all the mitigation measures of those models, we're still talking about an order of a million people dying. Yeah, I think uh, I think those models were grossly mistaken, um, and there were people like. John Enes saying that at the time, right? Uh, that we don't have enough data. And that was my, that was my instinct as well, that we, that we didn't have enough data to make the call. But why does it matter? So I think um, if we're doing talk, talking about policy, we have to account for the uncertainty in, in, uh, in this decision-making. We can't make the decisions as if there's only one side to it, which is what I think we said we did. We said, we saw the models, we said, okay, the, the, this is saying millions of deaths, well, what's the harm in shutting down for a little while? Yeah. What's the harm, right? Um, as if there were no costs to that whatsoever. A- a- and I think this is where economists failed. At that point, I think economists as a whole should have risen up and said, no, you need to think about the costs and the benefits. Um, I, but I, and I think there was a very easy rejoinder that, that drove many people away from that argument, which is that the costs as uh, the the costs as they were spec like argued and specified in Twitter and other places was on economic costs. Oh yeah, your GDP will get hit for a little while. Who cares? Lives are more valuable than GDP, which is true. I think lives are more valuable than GDP. But the point is that uh, it wasn't just GDP on the other side. It's lives on the other side of that as well. We're gonna we've seen that, and we're gonna continue to see that. I think for for a very long time actually. Um, so I think at that at that point. We should have been saying things like, look, uh, if you shut down the economies of the whole world, which is essentially what we did, yeah. the number of people who depend on those economies functioning well is absolutely enormous. I think, we've, I, think I saw some numbers. Uh, we've raised a billion people out of poverty in the last 20 years uh, with, gro- with GDP growth in developing countries worldwide. Right? So I, I grew up in, uh, in the United States, but I was born in India. Uh, when I was born in 1968, my, uh, my, uh, I looked this up at one time, my life expectancy at birth was 48. Oh, wow. 48. I'm 52. A kid born in India, a male born in India today is like 60, 60 something. I mean, enormous progress. Um, that progress is not magical. It comes because of economic growth. Uh, reversing that economic growth has consequences. So like the UN, for instance, are saying that 100 million people worldwide will starve as a, a consequence of the, the lockdowns and the economic shutdown. Uh, Gavi, which is this program that does uh, immunizations worldwide, shut down its operations. We'll, we will see a resurgence of polio and measles worldwide as, as a consequence of this. Uh, deadly diseases, uh, tuberculosis is gonna, gonna have a comeback. Uh, already has come back, million de- extra deaths of tuberculosis potentially. Because, you know, in order to treat tuberculosis, it's, it's not just a one time you get an antibiotic. You have to keep coming back, you know, time out, like week after week or whatever to get the new dose. Um, you, you stop that program and those people will die from tuberculosis and they'll spread it. Cancer diagnostics probably, right? Um, oh, cancer. So cancer, so we, we have actually had success story in the last few years where cancer mortality in the United States fell for the first time in living memory. That is, re- is going to be reversed almost certainly because not, not only that, did you get people not coming in for their, their, their cancer uh, screening, 
So we're going to see later stage breast cancers. We're going to see later, later stage prostate cancers, colon cancers than we otherwise would have seen. Uh, but we're also, we also saw people who were more afraid of COVID than of cancer. They had cancer. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, it's sad to think about, but it's, it's exactly what happened. Um, there was a, a little bit of a mystery for a while. Why weren't people coming in for heart attacks? Looks like COVID cured heart attacks or something, right? And no, strokes I mean, as well, right? Strokes. And that's how there was like the number of, of, of stroke patients, just, they disappear. Yeah. And so what was happening? People were dying of strokes and heart attacks in, at home rather than going to the hospital to get treated. Um, where we have excellent treatments for heart attacks now. And, you know, just, if it's just much safer. I mean, I, if I had a heart attack, I would go to the hospital. I mean, you have to. All right. So uh, those are costs. Those are lives. Uh, there is no risk-less option, which is what economists should have been saying at the time. But instead, what I heard economists saying was, oh, no, we have to, we have to, it's, it's okay to stop. We, there's this worst precautionary principle. We, there's this worst case. Let's focus on that. Uh, that is no guide for action. Because especially in a situation where there's massive uncertainty and you don't know, and there's risks on both sides. Yeah, and if you, if you take the precautionary principle, you don't go out and drive ever. Yeah, well, I mean, just, like, but, even, but it's even worse than that. Like, that's true. I mean, there, there's this reductive absurdity, absurdity right. kind of thing. But there's also, when you have a situation where there really are risks on both sides, which, which risk do you mitigate? Precautionary principle doesn't tell you anything about that. You have to make, you have to use a good old-fashioned economic analysis. Like, think about the cost and the benefits carefully, assess the risk. I mean, just it's hard, but you have to do it. Um, and you can't let people who are, that are pushing a particular policy because of fear basically intimidate you into to, to doing those careful, careful calculations on both sides. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the sort of like uh, 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 fighting words of like, no, you need to trust the science as if the science is a settled thing. And, and as you pointed out, right, there's, there's no settled thing at all in the science. Here's how the science was not settled. It's a bit of a joke. I made with my students today. If I had predicted, if I was a flat earther and I predicted in March, zero deaths, in zero hospitalizations by COVID, I will be closer to right than epidemiologists in Texas. That's true, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's a, my mean square error will be smaller than the predictions made by the experts. I mean, that's, that's atrocious. Right. I mean, I, I, and it's <laughs> as if there was this like sense of like any, any mistake on the upside is harmless and any mistake on the downside is, is going to kill people. That is, uh, that is just a mistake. Like an enormous mistake. And it's an enormous mistake that economists should have known better, should have been crying foul on from the beginning. And, I, and I, I, you point to economists, I've been very critical to, of them as well in the sense of like, where are they when we needed the sort of adults in the room making these cases very strongly, they disappeared. Statisticians yeah. also disappeared. I think John knew, or, or, or I think, you know, John is somebody that in the statistics field is incredibly respected. And my yeah. profession somewhat, you know, was very quiet throughout this whole thing. We know the badness associated with the epidemiological models. We know, we look at them in five minutes, like, whoa, hold on. And we didn't say anything. We did not go. No, but the, no, they were too busy attacking the, the standard errors in the Santa Clara study. So you, right. you got it. Right. <laughs> that's, that's right. All right. So let, let, let's go to, to a next topic that I, I think it, it's also incredibly important to what we're living right now. To some extent, you know, I think the, 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 the preference of people won over the politicians, at least in the U.S., but like you, even though in California, you're still more in a lockdown setup than, than I am here in Texas. For the most part, I think people some said like, ah, no, we're seeing the risk out there and we're living our lives adjusting to our best to do that, even though they've been bombarded constantly that, oh, no, we haven't done enough. We haven't done enough. Like, well, I don't know what enough would have been. I don't know what the options were and so on. But here we are at a point where where. Lots of things are open, lots of things I can do, but lots of kids in the state of Texas and most states in the country cannot go to school still. And, and so what, what, what do we know about the evidence associated with kids? Not only, we talked about the IFR only as being much, much lower, like perhaps close to zero for kids. Uh, but what do we know about, about their, their sort of contribution to the spread of the disease? Yeah, so I mean, I think that what you started with is the most important point, which is that that it's safe in as far as COVID is concerned to send kids to school. The risk they face from COVID is vanishingly small. And in fact, to kids themselves, the risk of not going to school are, are higher than going to school by an order of magnitude. Kids are where- What are those? So for instance, like kids, uh, school, so I, I study school, school nutrition meals. So like a very, very large fraction of kids, third, a third or higher get, get their meals, subsidized meals or free meals through school. A lot of their nutrition happens in schools. 
Uh, if you are of special needs, that's where you get your help. The, like socialization takes place in, in schools. It's, it's, it's where like people get uh, psycho psychological help when they're, when they're going through, kids are going through tough times. It's not just the education. But as, as well, we know that even short duration stoppage in educational activity can have very long run health consequences. There's an enormous econometric literature that establishes this. Um, so it's, it's, it's not just that you're reducing, you know, job prospects in the long run or, or in education. Right. It's not, you can't make it up. Um, like, how do you teach a kid? How do you teach a first grader to read on Zoom? It doesn't, it, I mean, just think about it. It just doesn't make any sense, right? Um, so, yeah, so I think schools are enormously important for children developmentally, psychologically, nutritionally, in, in so many ways. Whereas, like, having them stay at home is no substitute for that. Even learning from home is no is is not 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 developmentally appropriate um, way to teach. And and okay, so that's first thing. So the, the 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 it's safer for the kids to be in school than not. Then the question is, how about the the staff? There you have to look at these these studies of of of, of spread of the disease. So let me just tell you about one study, which I think is my very favorite study in the whole epidemic I've seen. It's this is a study published in New England Journal of Medicine, um, done by this group in Iceland. And what they did there is they, they got a sample of 12% of the Icelandic population, like representative sample of 12%. It was a very, very large-scale study. Um, they they uh, tested every single one of them, and they identified the virus from, from all of the positives in that 12%. Not, not, not actually all of them, but some subset of them were positive. And then they sequenced the genome of every single virus. So the virus itself mutates all the time. The mutations mostly don't change the function of the virus, but they serve as a sort of a fingerprint of, you know, so what virus you got. Um, and so, for instance, from that, you can tell, uh, like, I have mutation A in my virus, you have mutation A and B in your virus. I could have passed the virus to you, that's possible, because you had, we share A, but there's no, there's, it's unlikely that you passed it to me. And if you have A, if I have A and you have B, and I don't have B and you have A, then uh, I couldn't have passed it to you, right? right? So based on, on a careful contact tracing study with this representative population and this mutational analysis, they determined who, exactly who passed the virus to whom for every single person in Iceland, uh, for this 12% in Iceland, yeah. So, and it turns out that, and this is the absolutely shocking result, there wasn't one single instance of a child passing it to an adult, not one. A lot of instances of, of adults passing it to children not one single instance of a child passing it to an adult. Uh, children do pass the disease on, like other children can get it from them, but they seem like much less likely to spread the disease than, uh, than adults. And part of it is, is that for the most part, uh, when children are infected, they get a mild form of this. Many of them are not symptomatic at all. Uh, if you're asymptomatic, you can spread the disease, but much less efficiently. Right. The, the disease is spread by droplets, um, and uh, if you're sneezing and coughing on somebody, you're more likely to spread it to them than if you're if you're uh, if you're. But the amount of virus you have inside of you, also, if you're not having any symptoms, well, so much more, right? I mean, there the, the it so it does turn out there are studies that say that the kids have the virus there, but it's not causing the symptoms that allow them to spread it. Huh. So it's not that right, they have so, some sort of degree of immunity that they're able to fight it off earlier. It's just that they don't develop the symptoms. Yeah, but I mean, partly that's because of their immunity, right? They, that's one theory is that there's like this cross-reactive T-cell immunity that, that they have it preferentially over adults um, that, that protects them from getting severe symptoms. I mean, they still can get sick, but not really sick. Right. And so they, I think that's one of the theories. In any case, the empirical fact is they don't spread it. Right. And now at this point now, no one's done as careful a study as that Iceland study. Um, but now there have been contact tracing studies around the world around kids, and they find monotonously the same result over and over. In the UK, the single largest study found, found the same result. Ireland, uh, Greece, uh, uh, South Korea, which actually there was a there was a New York Times report reporting the opposite. Uh, but that when there was a second revision of that study that found that, that the, in South Korea the kids don't pass the pass pass the uh, uh, the, the virus. Uh, there are studies of school openings and closings, which seem to have almost no effect whatsoever on disease spread. Uh, schools are not the nidus of the spread of infection. Um, so what do we learn from this? The teachers are at more risk from other staff and other teachers than they are from kids. 
And um, in, there's a study uh, comparing Sweden and uh, Finland. Sweden, they left the, the, the schools open all the way through the epidemic, uh, up to age 15, no, no, no masks, no restrictions, no nothing. Um, and what they, what they, what they found, for, uh, there was no kids, by the way, zero kids dead right. from the epidemic. I'm going to quote here from, from because I have the number is zero kids death out of 1.8 million kids going to school through the whole pandemic. Correct. Right. Um, so, the, I mean, that's that is stunning. Right. So it is uh, uh, it is I don't want to say that there's no risk to teachers because there it's there are risks. I mean, like right. I said, from other and, you know, and I think we but we kind of know who's at risk if you are an older teacher. Uh, you, you know, the, you, there ought to be some accommodation for people who have high risk. Absolutely. So maybe the older teachers can teach for via Zoom, uh, or they can they can aid, help the younger teachers who can be in the classroom together. Uh, they can get reassigned to places where there's you know th things like that. I think are reasonable accommodations to, to to account for the fact of this. We should take the data and, and act on it in that way. But to to, to decide to not have in-person school at all, I think is immoral. Yeah, no, it's hard, hard not to, to think in those terms. And because and, you mentioned something about the, the sort of short term interruption to school being problematic and, and, and causing health problems to children. Right. The, the, we have a large body in literature, also in economics, about the long run impact of the summer on poor kids in particular. So yes. you know, our kids in the summer, they get a bunch of enriching activities. They don't lose any reading time, any math time and so on. Right. Any math ability. But yeah, poor income, yeah. lower income kids suffer a lot from the summer. Uh, so now we, we just had three summers in a row for some people. <laughs> I mean, uh -huh. the, yeah, I, I used to love summers, but like, uh, you know, that's, <laughs> uh, the, 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 uh, the, it, the, the summer was harder than, than, than the typical one, I think. Uh, the, the, but the inequality effects, you're, Carlos, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is, it is mind-boggling. Right. Uh, whatever progress we've made in, in closing those, those gaps in inequality are, are, are gone overnight. I saw this uh, picture in the San Jose Mercury News, which just is uh, – uh, so th it's of two Hispanic children. They couldn't be more than seven sitting outside on a curb of, it said like outside of a seven 11 uh, with their little uh, Google Chromebooks that their school had given them because they didn't have Wi-Fi at home. They're, you know, sort of leeching off the Wi-Fi of the seven 11 right. or whatever Taco Bell. I mean, it was, it's just, uh, how do you, how do you square that with our commitment to reducing educational inequality? I mean, you, you just can't. Right, you have to say, okay, I care way more about what the kids' well-being. No, you don't care about the kids' well-being. You, you care about something else if you're going to allow that to happen. Yeah, and you, you, you in the transfer is a transfer of a cost, right? To to um, to people that are benefiting. I say that perhaps the very old and vulnerable are benefiting from this at a cost that we typically don't think about that transfer going that way so clearly, right? And Carlos, we 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 did the exact inverse of the right policy implied by the evidence. We quarantined the healthy and the young. And we've exposed the old, old and vulnerable to the disease. You know, it, it, I think of forty percent of deaths, forty-five percent. A very, very large fraction of deaths are in nursing homes. Um, yeah, uh, first, you might say that it was just like you know we didn't know enough. Perhaps by the time we realized what was going on, nursing homes were infected already in a lot of places. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, to be fair, the United States. I mean, that's the same thing actually happened in Sweden. Like there was a, there was exposure in Sweden of nursing homes. Uh, it happened in many, many places around the world where it was in early days, difficult to protect. But I think now we know a fair bit about how to isolate. Uh, isolate. We, and we, can, we should be using our testing resources there right, right. where it would actually make a difference. Like if you want to enter a nursing home, you should have a rapid test done on you. And if you're, if it's positive, even if it's a false positive, I don't want you in there. Like I don't, I can't tell. That's right. That's right. So let me, let me go to then the, the mission testing. Cause then you wrote recently uh, uh, an op-ed in Wall Street Journal where you basically advocate for, uh, stopping testing healthy and young folks. And that goes against a lot of, a lot of I think, what, what's been conventional wisdom, even in a sense, well, if we tested more, things are going to not be a problem. In some ways, if you think about, you know, testing could be akin to a vaccine. If I, everybody was testing themselves every day at home before leaving the house, that could, be, that could essentially work as, as a vaccine, right? Um, uh, but, but so why, why go through your argument? Cause I think that's important to make the distinction. Okay. So, uh, so I think that like, first we should actually take on that, uh, that, 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 that alternative, because I think that has driven a lot of the discussions. It's incredibly misleading. That testing regime where we test everybody every day is not possible. It's not in the feasible space, not just for technical reasons, like just getting the capacity to run that many tests is not technically feasible, but also just behaviorally. 
right? So if, if I really have to go outside to feed my kids, you know, to, am I going to take that test? Is someone going to monitor me to make sure I take that test? It's, it's, it's not behaviorally consistent. Like I'm, I, you're going to voluntarily ask people to, to, to pay a cost where, especially where like they don't feel sick. They just feel, right. and they get a test, test. Now, if you did do these kind of things, you would have to have a, a, a like once these rapid tests that are, that actually have a fairly high error rate, both right. of false positive and false negatives. I, don't, I feel fine. I, the test says it's positive. If I miss work today, uh, I don't get, I don't, you know, I don't get a paycheck. Am I really going to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay at home voluntarily. You're asking people to pay costs for an external benefit that is uncertain. It just doesn't, as a, from a policy point of view, be very difficult to, to, to put, put a regimen like that. In. And I think we've, we've focused on that because we think about uh, test as this perfect thing that's cheap and easy to do. And my God, how come we, we the richest country on earth, can't get uh, 100% of the population tested every day into, into eternity? That has never been reasonable. And that alternative has driven a lot of policy. So like this, this dogma of test contact trace and quarantine has driven policy. Now that dogma works in very limited settings, right? So it works in very limited settings. It's, it works when there's very few people with the disease. The disease, in, in venereal diseases, it works great because the disease lasts pretty long. You don't get cured of it by yourself. Um, you can t- test and trace, you can, you can figure out who the full network of people you're, you, 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 you know, you, that's exposed to, that expose you to disease and isolate, and te- treat those, right? So that works great in that setting. When you have a disease that's, you know, in the early days, 40 times more common than, than you're seeing in cases, and now probably 10 times more common than you're seeing in cases, how does that work? Especially when a lot of it's asymptomatic, it makes absolutely no sense in that setting. Um, the whole idea, that, that the, even the premise of contract tracing, by the time we, we realized what was going on, that was completely out of the bag, right? Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I, I think it's useful for studies like the Iceland study and other settings in order to understand epidemiologically the nature of how the disease spreads. But there's a very different thing than using it to, to control the disease, to control the spread of the disease. I think uh, even by March, it was too late for that. Uh, the countries that were successful in controlling uh, that were, they had done it very, very early on where there were still very few cases. Most famously, South Korea, they, they found a super spreader event, they identified everybody, they controlled this, this, you know, this contact tracing thing, they controlled the spread with this app. But you know what? The cases are come back there. New Zealand famously identified every case, shut down the borders altogether of this island nation, and there were no cases for 120 days, and yet all of a sudden, the case pops up, and now they've shut down again. This disease is very infectious. It's very unlikely you're going to be able to stop it from, from, from spreading. The question is, who's getting it? What risk is posed to them? And what are the costs of shutting them down? We also talk about false positives with the PCR test, because that I think is an important thing. But even I don't need that argument for this. If you test in college campus settings, you will find cases. Guaranteed. We found them. Right. But what you won't find is very many cases that result in hospitalizations and deaths. Kids are going to be kids. I mean, I teach college kids and I was once a college kid. And, I know. you know, I mean, like that's, it's just normal developmentally for, for kids to, to interact with one another. You can't ask them to isolate themselves forever. And behaviorally um, also, they, if they understand that the risk to them is incredibly low. Yeah. They're not going to act in that, right? So, so yeah. they're more risk, risk taking anyway. And if the risk is told to them to be very low, then, well, it'll yeah. be hard. And we can't lie to them. I mean, I mean, just as, as a, we just have an obligation to tell the truth, right? We're, we're basically saying, let's test, and then what? We have okay, ten thousand cases in, on your college campus. What am I supposed to do with that? Well, the, the, the political pressure and the the media pressure is going to be to shut it down, right? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we'll do with that. But the harm from shutting it down is probably is is, is certainly more than the harm from letting keeping on going. Now, now it might be important uh, information. I, I think, for instance, for college professors. We should take, I mean, I personally would be perfectly fine teaching, you know, in person. I'm, I'm actually okay with that. But, you know, but I can understand professors who don't want to take that risk. We should make accommodations just like we, we do with, uh, for, for uh, high school or, or, you know, sort of elementary schools. We should, we should have accommodations for people who, who, who will, you know, for that fact. So, you know, teach outside if it's, if it's feasible. Yeah, if if, uh, if you're not comfortable, then yeah, fine. Do Zoom classes for for you know, especially if cases are spreading. I mean, you can do this without 
denying our, uh, the kids who go to college an actual college, an opportunity for an actual in, in, in-person dorm education. And anyway, that's, that's, that's uh, uh, so far at UT at least, I think we're, we're looking at a prevalence about 10% of the students, I think, in the tests that they're, they're being conducted. Um, and so far, you know, the, the, our administrators have been pretty, pretty steady on, on like, well, we'll manage this. This is fine. This is, not a, this is not a problem. And meanwhile, the public health officials in Austin, which don't have control of our decisions, it's kind of an interesting uh, governmental, like we, we live under the governor, governor inside of the UT campus. Uh, they've been, you know, yelling bloody murder for months on, like, no, you can't open, you can't, you have to shut it down. We had a football game this week here with 15,000 people in the stadium and they're like screaming at the top of their lungs. Perhaps that's not a great idea. Yeah, I'm not sure I go. But the campus being open, like, you know, unless there's something, as you, as you pointed out, unless there's like a huge impact on the progression of the disease elsewhere, um, and there's no evidence of that, right? And we, yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, it's not that there isn't, there isn't asymptomatic spread. There is, um, but it's much less efficient than symptomatic spread. So, you know, you, you tell kids who are, who are symptomatic, stay in your dorm, self-quarantine. They'll do it because they're symptomatic. If you, you tell an asymptomatic kid, oh, yeah, you got this positive. I'm feeling, you're, you're, I had no symptoms at all. Stay, stay for 14 days and isolate yourself. I mean, it's, it's harder. It's much harder. And, and, and I think, you know, I think that uh, like taking human uh, nature into account when we're doing these kind of policies is really important. And I think a lot of the policies are just, it's as if we were going to automatically obey when we don't, when people just don't, like they're going to consider the costs and benefits to themselves very carefully when they're deciding whether to obey. Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to close it up just, you know, so don't take more. Yeah, well, let, me just, let me just close the loop on, right. the, on the college and on asymptomatic testing. I think, I think, um, I think the balance, the, uh, the, I, want, I wanted to like return to the false positives because there, there actually now is some evidence that the PCR tests themselves have a false positive rate. So the PCR, the, the, the way that the test works is it, um, it amplifies the genetic material by doubling, right? So you put a little bit of a, like you run one cycle and it doubles the genetic material. Each time you run the cycle, you, if the virus is present or the, 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 the part of the virus you're looking for is present, it'll double, two, four, eight, 16, 32, right? Normally, like you, you would run it until it comes, the virus comes up to a detectable level. And now, uh, if the virus isn't present, you do the doubling zero times two is zero, zero times two, two is zero, so you get nothing, right? The, the, it, turns out, it turns out there's this emerging literature that the number, if you, if you double enough times, you will magnify, amplify non-infectious viral particles that you will get, essentially, even though it's not a false positive, you get a functional false positive. A, a positive that's not actually likely to be infectious. So this functional false positive is really important because uh, it depends on the number of cycles that you do this. So if you go 32 to the 30th, you, it, that seems like actually turns out to be pretty good balance. You've amplified things that are, you're still going to pick up some functional positive, uh, positives, but uh, uh, false positives, but okay. you're not that many. But after you do about 35, 37, 30, you know, that many cycles, it turns out almost all, if, if, you've, if you're negative up to 34 and then the 35th picks up a positive, that 2 to the 34th picks up nothing and the 2 to the 35th picks up something, you actually have a, almost 100%, very, very high rates of functional false positives, maybe 40 cycles. I mean, there's some, some I, the, the literature still is, un, uh, at least to me, unclear on exactly where that threshold is. A lot of the, the cycle times for the PCR tests are higher than 30 it, throughout, in labs throughout the United States. Country, so uh, I think it's I think it's Paraguay that seems to have done well with the epidemic. Um, the, their cycle times are thirty in their labs or lower, and so it looks like they don't have any cases because they're not picking up cases which where it only shows up positive after thirty five cycles, after thirty five doublings. Um, so I, I think uh, there is some increasing evidence that there's that there's false positives from these PCRs. And if that's true, it it, it makes the strength uh, the argument against uh, testing asymptomatics even stronger. I think. Stronger, right. Because the probability, if you're looking at somebody, there's a probability that's low enough to begin with, right? You just like the, the probability, of the posterior probability is going to be even lower, right, than, than, than you think, right? right. Uh, which, which, again, um, if, if the decision-making associated with that, right, imposes a huge cost without much of a benefit, that, that's exactly what's missing from, from the calculation. Yeah, um, right. So it sounds like a counterintuitive argument. The question is like, what do you do with the information? Use the test to save lives. Use the test to uh, make sure that no one enters a nursing home that's possible. And fine, if you have a false positive and you left, leave someone outside the nursing home, that's better than, than exposing somebody. The balance, the costs and benefits there point toward excluding people who have any chance of being positive right. or indication of being positive. 
uh, colleges? Can kids go 18 to 20 year olds hang out with one another that are asymptomatic? Even if I get some positives, I mean, I'm just not going to, it's hard for me to get excited when it doesn't result in, in, in people ending up in the hospital and dying. All right. So where do we go from here? What, what do you think? What's your sort of general prognostics? I, where, where, where <laughs> prognostic? I know, that's a, I know that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult question, but, but like, you know. <laughs> uh, I, uh, okay, let me start with my I use the word wrong. I use the word wrong. I think, I think that just, just what your forecast, I think, what do you think, you know, in terms of the disease progression or, or types of things from a... Yes, that's, that's a li- so there's two schools of thought on disease progression. So one school of thought uh, is that... Uh, we're not going to see a second wave. We haven't seen a second wave anywhere yet, really. What we've seen is regional epidemics with a big burst, uh, essentially a harvesting of, 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 of lives, unfortunately, right. uh, and then a, a decline. Right? We saw that in New York, and the question is like, how high does the peak reach? Is it, will that, and, and, and there's one school of thought that says, look, uh, look at Sweden. They have had no second wave. Their deaths are down to zero. They've lo- they've not locked anything down. If it's going to run through the population, it's going to run through the population. Right, they're done. Right, um, they're done. Um, that's one school of thought. And another school of thought is that look, it's seasonal. There might be a, a second wave. I don't know enough to tell the difference yet between those two views. Uh, if 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 you if you pin me down, I'd say that that the first school is more likely true. But I don't. I have a lot of uncertainty around that. I just say, um, I think. Um, what we've learned about the lockdowns, even if there's a second wave, I do not think there should be a lockdown, not a general lockdown. We should use what we've learned, which is we know who's vulnerable and focus the lockdowns on those populations and le- let everyone else live their life. Con- controlling community spread as a way to protect the vulnerable is too costly. And, um, and I think we've seen, and I think we've seen that, that even in the very hard hit areas, uh, the sort of, uh, we never overwhelmed the hospital capacity, which was one of the arguments in the beginning that, well, we're not going to be able to manage the, ins- the onslaught of cases. And we, yeah, we I think it's like Italy did, you might make, you might make some argument days about that. There was like a few days or real bad and then it went away. Right. So, so yeah, it was, it was not great. I'm not going to suggest that was, that was, you know, not dramatic what happened in Italy or even in New York city uh, for, for a week or so there. But, but again, balancing through the cross, we, we just saw, in Texas for the last, since May, as we reopened here, that yes, the wave came because we didn't have it. We locked down before anything. The wave came and, and in fact peaked much earlier than, than I think what, what some, you know, well, much earlier than any epidemiological studies would expect. Uh, and it's hard to explain why would it gone away given that the behavior changes are not in place. So, you know. Yeah, I mean like. Uh, so more they did in, in May. I mean, herd immunity is a dirty word, but what is it actually? So herd immunity just means that uh, on the margin, an additional case results in one or fewer additional cases. So that the total case numbers daily are coming down rather than up. Th- there's not a single herd immunity number in that sense, because that has to do with the, 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 the structure of the social network in which the disease passes one another. So if you see cases declining, people start interacting a lot, you, might, you, may, you may see cases go back up. And then, uh, you know, then they'll take more precautions. It goes back down again. I mean, that, that kind of idea about herd, not one herd immunity number, but a, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a dynamic response to the risk privately, I think that's likely to happen, continue to happen in this. Um, uh, so I think that, that in that sense, Sweden's not in herd immunity. Right. It's given the set of social circumstances, social interactions they currently have, they have very, they, they've no, very little spread. Texas is on its way down. It looks like it's, uh, it, but if cases go up, maybe maybe people will change their social interactions again. And in Sweden, you can say that, well, once winter comes in, people start being inside more, people start being close proximity to each other more, and therefore the social interactions change. And then, you know, the, the thing can creep up again, right? Yeah, so I, th- I, don't think we're, I don't think we're done with this in that sense. Um, I do think we have to learn to live with it, right? So we have to learn to live with it, actually live, not just hide, um, which is what we've been doing. I think Think of, I think that, that we have to understand that there is no safe alternative here. And that's going to continue to be true. Now, uh, there's going to be a vaccine. Um, uh, well, <laughs> I should be careful. I, it's likely that there's going to be a vaccine. It will be statistically difficult to prove that the vaccine works for deaths because the setting is the vaccine is tested in a setting of declining cases and deaths. Um, so if we run the vaccine trial in a setting where there's no cases at all, 
you're not going to find any statistically significant difference, right? Uh, it's going to be harder to find. You need much larger samples to find a statistically significant difference. Um, so uh, there'll most likely be an intermediate endpoint, um, you know, the, the, rather than you know, so rather than deaths, maybe cases, or rather than cases, maybe uh, protective immunity, T cell immunity, or some 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 sort of measure of immunity. I don't know. Um, the key question for the vaccines is how safe are they going to be? And I think that that, that there's there's going to be, and just I just know from from, uh, from personal involvement that there will be a very rigorous process to see if the vaccine is safe. Uh, in fact, I think the AstraZeneca's trial just got stopped because they found one case of transverse myelitis in this adenovirus vaccine um, platform. So I think um, I'm, I'm hopeful. Actually, I, if you'd asked me six months ago, would it be possible to get to this stage where we have all these vaccine candidates in in September, I would have said, said that's there's no way. So in that sense, like we've done, well, you know, Yeoman's work to like get to get the, you know, get to this point. Um, I'm hopeful, but we'll see. The vaccine could change things, right? Especially if there's a safe and effective, uh, somewhat effective vaccine. I don't think it'll solve the epidemic, but it'll it'll make a lot life. It'll be like more like an H1N1, like we started the conversation. Anyway, Jay, thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful. Yep, thank you, Carlos. Pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. 